This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're celebrating Rocktober with our series this month, Bands Gone Wild. In these episodes, you'll hear all about bands on tour and some of the craziest things that have happened on stage during these tours. If you're new to the podcast, I'm just going to point out a couple of things about these episodes this month. Number one is that they're a little different. Instead of having our usual true crime case that I research, write out, and narrate for you, I am doing something a little bit more casual. And the reason why is because we are talking about music and musicians, rock and roll, metal music, all the things that I love besides true crime. But I thought these episodes lended themselves to just a little bit more of a casual feel to them. So the episodes this month will sound a little different from all of the other episodes that I have, over 250 at this point, as I've been producing Once Upon a Crime for over six years. So if you like the more scripted version, straight true crime stories, there's plenty for you to choose from. And there will also be another one of those at the end of this month for our Halloween special. But for those listeners who have said that they like the more casual style that they can occasionally hear on this podcast, these episodes are for you. Let's get started with our last chapter in the series, Bands Gone Wild. This time, we're talking about the band NWA. One more note. Also, if you're new to the podcast, you will probably know that I do not tend to have explicit ratings on my episodes. The only time I ever have explicit ratings is when there's a quote where there is some explicit language. But I've noticed in this series, every episode is going to have an explicit rating. And that's because we're talking about rock bands, musicians, things that happen on stage, and a lot of interviews and things that I'm pulling from for these episodes that are going to have some explicit language. This one even more than most. (laughs) Because what we're going to be talking about is a song that includes explicit language in the title. It's a big part of this story, and so you'll be hearing that just so you know, up front. Okay, here we go with episode 259, Bands Gone Wild, NWA, Drama in Detroit. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about NWA. This band is today considered one of the greatest and most influential hip-hop groups that ever recorded. N.W.A. was the first to take rap to the public beyond the African-American community in a big way and also became a major influence to artists worldwide across all kinds of genres. N.W.A. was active as a band from 1987 to 1991. They were formed in 1987 in Compton, California. Their founding member was rapper Eazy-E, whose given name was Eric Wright. We will be calling him Eazy-E for the rest of this episode. So Eazy-E co-founded Ruthless Records with promoter Jerry Heller. Jerry Heller would serve as NWA's promoter and manager. Eazy-E first approached Dr. Dre, who eventually became the second member of NWA. Dr. Dre is probably a familiar name to you. He was a rapper and record producer whose 1992 solo album, The Chronic, made him one of the best-selling American music artists of the 90s. He also became an entrepreneur later on as the co-founder of Beats Electronics He was also the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment and co-formed and co-owned Death Row Records. 
but he had been originally a member of the world-class wrecking crew along with DJ Yella, whose given name is Antoine Carby, and he would later be brought into NWA by Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre and DJ Yellow were both DJs and producers during that time and in that place, Compton, California. The third member of the group was Ice Cube, and he is probably very recognizable to many people because not only is he a rapper, but he is also a movie star at this point. He's been in many movies, including the 1995 comedy Friday, which is one of my favorites, Boys in the Hood, a 1991 drama that was named after a 1987 rap song that Ice Cube wrote. He was also in the Barbershop series and uh, 21 Jump Street series and the Ride Along series. So he's been in quite a few movies. So that's way later on in his career. We're going to be talking about his early career here when he was just an up-and-coming rapper and uh, got recruited to rap with NWA and form this group. Okay, we got Easy e Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, DJ Yella. Okay, and also Arabian Prince. He was a promoter, and he became a short-lived member of the group. And MC Ren, or Lorenzo Gerald Patterson, and he also became a member of NWA. So they formed in 1987 and very quickly gained a following. The first single they released, Panic Zone, came out in 1987. Now, this would not be their first studio album because it was a single, and it was then it was released on a compilation album titled NWA and the Posse. On that album, there were three tracks from NWA and also the solo track recorded by Eazy-E, Boys in the Hood. Okay, so 1988 is when NWA released Straight Outta Compton, which was their debut studio album. And this album received Gangsta Rap's first platinum certification. So huge seller. But Gangsta Rap music in the late 1980s and early 1990s, it was not known by that by the band. NWA originally called their music reality rap. But Gangsta Rap is a subgenre of hip hop that reflects the life experienced by inner city American black youth. NWA would say that they wrote songs that reflected the reality of their own lives and those of other black urban youth in their communities. And some of the themes that they would often uh, write and rap about were over-policing in their communities, uh, racism, violence, drugs, and police brutality. We'll go into that in a minute here as we talk a little bit about Straight Outta Compton, the album. Straight Outta Compton was controversial from the beginning because explicit content, sex, drugs, violence, and a lot of explicit language. It was one of the first albums to feature a parental advisory sticker on the packaging. Remember when that became a thing? Or maybe you don't, you might be too young for that, but (laughs) you didn't used to have advisories stickers on albums. Well, first of all, most of the time, those kind of records couldn't get made or at least wouldn't be published because, uh, It just wouldn't be produced by record companies. But then, of course, as times evolved and there was more language and things on music, then you started having some people come in and say, you know, we don't want this because our kids are buying these albums. They're playing them and and there's explicit language and we didn't know that was in there. We wouldn't let our child buy it, that kind of thing. So NWA was one of the first to have one of these stickers. The label actually just said, warning, moderate impact, coarse language and or themes moderate impact. I'm not sure what that means, but (laughs) I thought that was interesting. Once you slap that sticker on it, of course, young people are going to want it more, right? It's a taboo. It's a taboo nature. So the taboo nature of NWA's music only resulted in more record sales. Radio stations wouldn't play these 
records because of the language and because of the content. But the media coverage surrounding this forbidden music, if you will, more than made up for the lack of airplay of their songs. Straight Outta Compton sold 1 million copies in, in the first year and eventually went double platinum, selling over 2 million copies, which was huge, especially for a rap album. It was the first rap album to gain five stars from Rolling Stone magazine. It peaked at number nine on the Billboard's Top 200. Some of the themes included graphic sexual talk about women, violence against other, you know, rivals, selling drugs and doing drugs and being uh, arrested, thrown in prison. There was a lot of harshly worded criticism against the police. Okay, put it that way. So the top songs on the album, let's go straight into that, was number one, Straight Outta Compton, which is probably one of the most recognizable songs even today. Straight Outta Compton, basically what it was, was an introduction song. Several members of the band took a turn rapping and talking about themselves, also telling a little bit about their experiences, of course, in a way that uh, was musically pleasing, (laughs) as well as, you know, a great rap song. Ice Cube, Ren, and Eazy-E all wrapped their credentials, these verses in Straight Outta Compton. Even MTV banned this music from being played. Gangsta Gangsta was another one of the very popular songs on Straight Outta Compton. And this song described the reality of gangbanging, violence, and, quote, not giving a fuck. Okay, it was that whole attitude of basically, yeah, we're gangsta, deal with it. (laughs) So straight up. On these lyrics, I tried to pick out ones that don't have as many uh, explicit words in them, but it's, it's a little difficult to do. Pull up the lyrics and, and see if you can do better. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> I did my best. If you like rap at all, it's just something you just cannot not respond to when you're listening to it in some way. It just really draws you in. And I'm not going to try to rap, you guys. I'm no rapper, believe me, at all, but I will try to read it you know, in a way that's not boring. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is gangsta gangsta. And then you say, God damn, they ruthless. Everywhere we go, they say, damn, NWA's fucking up the program. And then you realize we don't care. We don't just say no. We too busy saying, yeah, about drinking straight out of the eight bottle. Do I look like a motherfucking role model? So that, that's just a little bit of a taste of gangsta gangsta. You know, you want to go play it now. Don't lie. You know, you want to go play it now. This is the group's most notorious song. This is what we're here to talk about today. It's the song, Fuck the Police. Like I said, can't get past the explicit language in this uh, episode because we are talking about this song, Fuck the Police, which is pivotal to the career of NWA. Okay, Ice Cube and Wren were both 19 years old when they recorded this track. And what the song was was a protest against police brutality and racial profiling in their communities. Ice Cube had the idea for this song, Dr. Dre was reluctant at first to record this song since he had had his troubles with the police and had been in out-of-county jail and didn't want to be hassled more because of the song because he knew this could make them even more of a target, of course. But the next time they got hassled for something that they did, which was stupid, um, but probably not the worst thing ever, he decided, let's just, let's do it. Let's just record it. He actually got picked up by cops, him and Eazy-E, for shooting paintballs towards people who were waiting for a bus. And uh, Dre says this, quote, the cops caught us and we were face down on the freeway with guns pointed at us, Dre recalled in 2007. We thought it was bullshit. So we went to the studio and created the song. Okay, shooting paintballs at people is not cool. Okay. (laughs) And you probably should have, you know, 
gotten some kind of consequence for that, but having guns at your head on the ground is a little bit of an overreaction. But this is what people were facing at that time, especially in Los Angeles. People of color was just pretty out of control. It really was. And you can you can look up the history of the LAPD and, um, oh gosh, I mean, not even just LAPD, but people around the country. And you can see that there was definitely, definitely this big rift between the African-American community and the cops in L.A. at at that time. I mean, we're not even going to talk about Rodney King, but that was right around that time as well. But we'll talk about that another time. So it's a very big story, but we won't go into that today. The most tame of the lyrics I can find in Fuck the Police, and it's a very long song, so, (laughs) but it was the best I could do. Go listen to it. And they're talking about what they would like to do to the police, you know, talking about how they've been profiled and beaten and, uh, arrested and thrown in jail and racially profiled and everything else. And this is a response to that and saying what they would like to do the police. Here's one part of the lyrics. Beat a police out of shape. And when I'm finished, bring the yellow tape to tape off the scene of the slaughter, still getting swole off bread and water. Without a gun and a badge, what do you got? A sucker in a uniform waiting to get shot. Okay. So explicitly describing violence they would like to commit against police. So you can imagine that this was going to be very controversial. So controversial that an assistant director of the FBI went rogue. It wasn't something that was directed by the head of the FBI or anything like that. This is just somebody who was assistant director in the FBI who decided to do this on his own. He sent a letter to Ruthless Records and its distributing company, Priority Records, accusing NWA's distributor with promoting violence against police officers. And here's part of the letter, quote, Law enforcement officers dedicate their lives to the protection of our citizens, it read. And recordings such as the one from NWA are both discouraging and degrading to these brave, dedicated officers. It also goes on to say, advocating violence and assault is wrong, and we in the law enforcement community take exception to such action, end quote. Okay, advocating violence and assault is wrong. I read that and I thought, but shouldn't that be on both sides? I mean, that's just a little commentary, you know, take that what you will, (laughs) But yes, advocating violence and assault is wrong. Okay, let's just end it there. This letter became famous. I mean, this is something that you would use if you were a band to say, hey, the FBI says we're dangerous, right? And then guess what? Record sales shoot up the roof once again. This is actually a a pretty famous letter. You can actually see this letter on display at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, in the NWA portion in the display. So I thought that was pretty cool. So that was that song, and we're going to get back to that in a minute. But the whole genre of what NWA was doing and what other rappers now would start to do, which was to create these songs with very in-your-face explicit messages about life, about what they were experiencing, about what they were seeing in their neighborhoods and what they wanted to do about it, and with violent lyrics and explicit language and even some homophobia and some misogyny and anti-Semitism thrown in for a bad measure, okay? I'm unapologetically telling you all of this because this is the reality of what this music was. Love it, hate it, think it's horrible, think it's great. You know, you can think whatever you like. Uh, this is just the reality of what was happening at the time. And here was what some of the response to it. The whole genre of gangster rap now became a target by politicians. Both presidents, George Bush and Bill Clinton, criticized gangster rap and said that it was a danger to the youth. It was a danger to police forces around the country. 
and uh, should be, if not outright banned, should be avoided. And you should not allow your children to listen and those kind of things. And they started out with the explicit ratings because of this. But here's a response to that from Sister Solja, who is an activist and a writer. And she said this at the time, quote, The reason why rap is under attack is because it exposes all the contradictions of American culture. What started out as an underground art form has become a vehicle to expose a lot of critical issues that are not usually discussed in American politics. The problem here is that the White House and wannabes like Bill Clinton represent a political system that never intends to deal with inner city urban chaos, end quote. And I think I mentioned this, but many mainstream radio stations banned NWA's music from being played altogether. When NWA started to plan a tour, police departments refused to let their officers provide security for NWA's concerts, making it impossible for them to perform in some cities. So Daryl Brooks would serve as the tour's promoter. And because he had to go around the country and figure out how he could get permission for NWA to take the stage in, in various cities, NWA's manager, Jerry Heller, had to sign agreements with Daryl Brooks as the promoter, certain things. And number one was the band would be fined $25,000 if it played the song, Fuck the Police. Could not play that song during the tour. As a matter of fact, NWA had performed the song Fuck the Police just once live. And this was at the Celebrity Theater in Anaheim, California in early 1989. So this was basically in their hometown or close by in California. But after that, I guess they decided it wasn't a good idea. At least the uh, tour manager decided it wasn't a good idea and uh, put that stipulation in the contract. On June 18, 1989, NWA performed in Cincinnati, Ohio. There was a couple of things they noticed right away at these concerts, and this Cincinnati show was no, no exception. On the night that NWA played the concert, um, the Cincinnati Police Department tripled the number of officers that they usually staffed for even the biggest concerts. They went on, they performed their songs, and at the end of it, MC Ren, Ice Cube, and the opening act, Too Short, were all cited for disorderly conduct. And what was called disorderly conduct was the profane language they used in their songs. Well, if they heard their songs, they would, <laughs> they would know they're full of profane language. So hello. But anyway, all three were basically convicted of disorderly conduct and fined $100 each. They were going to be playing the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, Michigan, which was going to be a big crowd of over 20,000 people. And there was another big problem as far as touring and being able to say what they wanted to say and perform the songs the way they wanted to. Due to the song's lyrics being very explicitly against police, even advocating violence against police. And there's a big problem with that because in order to play these venues, they had to have insurance. Insurance carriers required police security as a condition of issuing a policy. You had to have police there or they were not going to give you a policy. So if there was no police, there was no insurance going to be issued. And if there was no insurance going to be issued, there could be no concert. So ahead of this show in Detroit, the Detroit Police Department threatened to boycott, quote, those fuck the police motherfuckers NWA. So they had to tread a little lightly here, but I can imagine that was not an easy thing for them to concede because this was a big part of who they were as a band, and this was their most popular song. But up until this point, they did not perform it on tour. So August 6, 1989, the concert in Joe Louis Arena is uh, at full capacity of over 20,000 people. Opening for the band were other well-known acts like LL Cool J, De La Soul, Too Short, and Slick Rick. 
So it was a whole, you know, night's program with the NWA as the headliner. There were over 200 police officers working at the venue that night. They were strategically placed throughout the arena and made sure that they could very well be seen by all attendees and the band. Okay, this was definitely a show of force. 200 police officers for one concert. I have never seen such a thing. <laughs> never, I mean, was there anybody else left in Detroit to police uh, the rest of the city? It just seems like a, a, a quite a bit. And it was so funny because I was reading about this ahead of time and I'm thinking, okay, how did they justify that? What did they say? And they said, well, we knew it was a rap concert, so there would be marijuana there. So we had to keep an eye on that. Like basically we had to arrest everybody for marijuana. Uh, good luck with that, right? But of course, that was just uh, an excuse. And I'll talk about why they were really there in that great number in just a moment here. So even before the concert started, some of the higher ups in the Detroit Police Department met with the band members and personally told them that they were not allowed to play Fuck the Police. Of course, they already knew this, but they just wanted to make sure that they knew that this was something they were keeping an eye on, something that they did not want to have happen in Detroit. So they went on, played the show. Things were going great. Towards the end, when it seems like they're probably going to be wrapping up, the crowd, the audience started chanting. And this was towards the end of the show. Thousands of people start chanting, fuck the police, fuck the police. They want to hear the song. Plus, they're seeing the show of force of all these cops around. And I'm sure they're thinking, wouldn't it be great if they perform that song with all of these cops here who are trying to intimidate us and want us to know that they're in charge here? Wouldn't it be great if they played that song right now? It didn't take any discussion or anything. Later on, it, this is what the band would say. Ice Cube and Dr. Dre just gave each other one look at the end of one of the songs that they played. They kind of looked over at each other. They kind of nodded, and they start the beats to play the song. So not even 30 seconds into the song, the group's tour manager, Anton Gregory, said this, quote, All of a sudden you hear, bap, 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 bap. Guys are running, and guys are trying to storm the stage. And of course, our security guys are fighting the guys who have stormed the stage. It turns out that these were the cops, and they had lit off some cherry bombs or fireworks. So as soon as the song started, there was cops there already ready with these firecrackers, and they actually lit them and threw them up on the stage. And it sounded like gunfire. I mean, what a way to start a stampede, a riot, to get people hurt, right? A crazy, crazy idea to do something like that. But right after that, as soon as that happened and people start panicking, the band ran off the stage because they thought, shit, we're in the spotlight and people are shooting. That was the first instinct was to get off out of the lights. And so they run off the stage. And as all the chaos starts to happen, um, this is a quote, every police officer in the building starts rushing the stage out of nowhere. It looked like the Battle of the Bulge. So Ren's account of what happened was this, quote, me and Dre were together. We ran backstage. We ran out of the door. And once we looked out, it was like, all right, I guess I realized it was okay. He said, and then we turned around and went back in the building. Everybody was like back into the dressing room. The police were in there trying to give citations or some bullshit like that. Ice Cube says this, once they were in the dressing room, he said the cops were there. They corralled us all in the dressing room. He said they kept us there talking to them for about an hour. In the end, they just wanted autographs for their kids. And he said we didn't get cited or anything. DJ Yella had wound up alone on the street. And, and what, I, what I picture here is, you know, everybody's running out, right? And he probably was the fastest runner. 
and uh, you know, he got all the way out to the street and turned around. Everybody's gone. You know, it's like, oh shit, we're not, everybody's gone. <laughs> it's one of those things you ever do that. Oh gosh, I'm, now now I'm uh, now I'm telling stories about uh, house parties and running. Okay, I'm I won't go there. <laughs> he says this. We all went different ways. I ran into the parking lot. He says. And then he had to walk, he ended up walking back to the hotel room because everybody else ended up getting in a car and going to the hotel. So now the, the band's off the stage, but at the venue where the audience was, it's just mayhem. It's just mayhem. Cops, like I said, had swarmed the stage and they swarmed the stage and they immediately jumped up and began pulling out amplifiers and pulling out the plugs, which is, I mean, is that a cop's job? That's so weird to me, but that's what they did. Then some of the cops made their way backstage where they ran into LL Cool J's area where his dressing room was. Now, the bands all had their own security at the venue. So they're guarding the performers and the area where they're getting ready, where they're backstage and all that. So LL Cool J's security was there and the cops started rushing at them while the security began fighting the police. So LL Cool J's security and the, and the police are fighting. And it just it was just chaos. It was chaos back there. It's just something you don't expect to see happening, like where the cops were like hassling the performers, you know, I mean, audience members, you could see maybe <laughs> like that would be more normal that they would think, oh, these guys are out of control. Let's just crack some heads. But the performers themselves and their security it didn't seem like a normal thing. In the end, nine adults and nine juveniles were arrested and they were all misdemeanor charges. I mean, what, what could the charges have been running away from cops or, um, you know, <laughs> fighting with cops who are fighting with you. Uh, yeah, it's just strange. So this is an interesting aside in this story. So that night, the tour manager returned to the hotel where the band was staying with a briefcase full of cash from the show, so from the ticket sales of the show. He also brought plane tickets for the band to return to L.A. And the production manager at that point called the band's bus driver and asked him to check on the, quote, two cases of guns that the band carried with them on the road. Two cases of guns they carried on the road. Wow, that sounds... <laughs> I just, I didn't know that happened. I mean, do bands carry weapons around? Um, this is on the bus, so of course uh, you can get it through, not like you're in an airplane or something, right? And this, this was what interesting, too. The band's first thought was to drive over the border into Canada, in case anything was about to happen, like arrests were going to happen or they're going to throw them in jail. Maybe the cops would, would beat them up or, you know, who even knows? Worse than that. So they, there's like, hey, you know, if we need to get out of here, let's go into Canada. Well, I guess you better get rid of those guns <laughs> before you cross the border. But right after that, the police arrived to confront the band. And this is when they corralled the group according to Ice Cube and kept them there but didn't arrest them. That was really kind of it. It was kind of an anticlimactic ending to it, but it was just an odd thing that the fact that they were using words that the police didn't like, expressing sentiments in their art, which was their, their music, that the police didn't like, and they were now going to just you know, create this chaos in this concert, which could have very well become very dangerous. People thought there were guns being shot off. There could be people there with weapons that maybe started shooting themselves or people were running, panicking, 20,000 people trying to get out. There could have been you know, people that are trampled. We know this happens in, in concerts. We've talked about this in the series. It just was very irresponsible. Plus the fact that nothing had happened other than them starting to sing this song. It wasn't like they started singing the song and then the audience started attacking the police. It wasn't like 
um, they started singing the song and now the crowd went wild and, and none of that happened. It was just a show of force by the police. And here's what was said about why that probably happened. Now, this account came from a retired police sergeant, Larry Courts, who was actually there that night. He said he was one of the ones who had gone before they started playing to talk to um, the band members. And he said this, that he had orders from higher ups about what he was to do. He said, we had contact with the band in advance, that there was one song that they had out at the time. I'm sure some of you remember, well, maybe not the young kids, but the old kids. And he says this called F the police. It wasn't going to happen in the city of Detroit. And we told them that before they came. But the sergeant said this in the interview, quote, I said, this is America. They should be allowed to sing their song. The fear is that it would incite trouble. Me and some of the other supervisors and some of the guys who worked the streets, we didn't think there was going to be a riot, but we had our marching orders. We were told that under no circumstances that they were to perform that song. And other commentary after the fact of, this, of the Detroit show was that police were there to intimidate NWA's mostly young African-American fans, that they were just being bullies and they wanted to show that they were in control. And there was this whole kind of pride around the fact that Detroit doesn't take any shit. Detroit police don't take any shit. And we are going to show you ahead of time that you can't do that here. You can't do that here. So basically, it was a free speech issue is what it was. But they couched it in terms of, oh, there's going to be a riot. There's too many drugs there. There's going to be violence, which none of that happened except for what the police brought to the show. That was the NWA show at Detroit, August 6, 1989. And after the short break, I'll tell you a little bit more about NWA and what became of the band after that. In 1987, the band was formed. In 1988, Straight Outta Compton became this platinum-selling album. But by the end of 1989, the band had split up. Ice Cube was the first to leave the band in December of 1989, and he left over a dispute over royalties. He had written over half of Straight Outta Compton's lyrics by himself, and he felt like he wasn't being fairly compensated. He brought a lawsuit against manager Jerry Heller, that was later settled out of court. He then embarked on a solo career that was very successful. His first album was released in 1990. He didn't mention anything about his former bandmates in that album, but NWA released their second album, 100 Miles and Renan, released that same year. That's the same year that Ice Cube released his solo album, and their album included diss tracks towards Ice Cube. Just some vicious things said about Ice Cube, about how he was a traitor and how he was a sellout. And I mean, and way worse than that. And pretty graphically spoken about their dislike for Ice Cube and, and, and just vicious criticism of him. Then Ice Cube retaliated on his next album and the animosity between him and NWA escalated. Ice Cube goes on a vicious tirade against the band in his single, No Vaseline, which became <laughs> very well known. And uh, man, it was just, yeah, it was way on by that point as far as this whole uh, feud that was going on between NWA and Ice Cube. 
Okay, in 1990, Dr. Dre left Ruthless Records to join Death Row Records. There was allegations at that time that Eazy-E was coerced into signing away the contracts of the NWA members, but that he had kept a portion of the publishing rights for himself, which you can imagine didn't go over well. This set off a feud between Dre and Eazy that would continue until Eazy-E's death in 1995 from complications of AIDS. Um, he was the age of 30 when he died. Eazy-E also had feuded with his former friend MC Ren. And you guys, I may have bespoke. <laughs> I keep getting this back when I keep calling them DJ or MC. And I, because I just, if I messed up in the episode, apologies. I know who's who, but I've said them so many times was that when I was recording and when I was writing uh, these notes down, I may have flipped them here and there, but I know who's who, but I may have misspoke, put it that way. MC Ren, he had feuded with his former friend, but they had reconciled shortly before his death. Uh, before Easy's death. But by 1993, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and MC Ren had largely put their differences behind them and had even collaborated on projects with Snoop Dogg, um, including Snoop Dogg's 1994 short film and soundtrack, Murder Was the Case. In 2000, NWA and Death Row Records collaborated for the Up in Smoke tour with Snoop Dogg, uh, Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, Ren, and Eminem, who recorded with them in a mobile studio during the tour. But the album was never released uh, for logistical reasons. There were some singles, I believe, were released on other albums, but not a standalone studio album for um, that, which is a shame. In 2015, a long-awaited biopic about NWA was released in movie theaters. The movie was titled Straight Out of Compton. Ice Cube and Dr. Dre were also producers on the movie. Ice Cube's son, O'Shea Jackson Jr., played the younger version of his own father, Ice Cube. In the movie, Jason Mitchell plays Eazy-E, Corey Hawkins plays Dr. Dre, Aldous Hodge as MC Wren, and Neil Brown Jr. as DJ Yella. The movie was well-received, and it finished first at the box office in its opening weekend and would gross over $200 million in ticket sales worldwide. It was the highest-grossing musical biopic of all time at that time. And the all-time highest-grossing film from a black director in the U.S., the director was F. Gary Gray. It was also very critically acclaimed and was nominated for many awards, including Movie of the Year and Best Breakthrough Performance by O'Shea Jackson Jr. Uh, at the MTV Awards. And it won Outstanding Motion Picture, and O'Shea Jackson Jr. won for Outstanding Supporting Actor at the NAACP Image Awards. It's a great movie, you guys. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. I enjoyed it a lot. You'll see the scene about the Detroit show is a little bit Hollywoodized. You'll know having listened to this episode. Uh, what parts were kind of Hollywoodized, um, how they were arrested immediately and all that kind of stuff didn't actually happen. But it's a, it's a great movie. And uh, of course, you get to hear the music in it. And so it's awesome. Great acting. Man, O'Shea Jackson Jr. looks exactly like his dad, Young Ice Cube. Amazing, amazing. Check it out if you haven't seen it yet. In 2016, the surviving members of NWA reunited and performed in Detroit. So they went back to Detroit after... Many, many years, and they did perform Fuck the Police. And the local police actually provided them with a police escort to the show. Uh, DJ Yellow laughs like we were the president or something. <laughs> so uh, vindicated, I guess. In 2020, the song Fuck the Police, what had been recorded 32 years earlier, experienced a nearly 300% uptick in on-demand streams across all platforms. And this was partially in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests around the country that were happening at that time. 
um, and around the world in the summer of 2020. And this was after George Floyd's murder by police officers in Minneapolis was caught on video, which went viral around the world. In a Rolling Stone interview, Wren says, fuck the police means as much to him now as it did three decades ago. Quote, it's still the same message. It's the same thing. And it's going to have the same message after I'm gone. End quote. Last thoughts about the song from a 2020 GQ article. Quote, fuck the police has evolved from a too dangerous to be performed anthem to a timely Spotify hit with 157 million plays. End quote. We're off next Monday, October 24th, but we'll be back with our Halloween special scary, creepy, true crime story on October 31st. Also, I want to let you guys know that I was recently a guest on my friend Bob Ruff's podcast, True Crime Binge. You may know the great and wonderful Bob from his other podcast, a little thing called Truth and Justice. (laughs) On True Crime Binge, Bob introduces his listeners to their next favorite true crime podcast by inviting guests on to tell a little bit about themselves, how they got started in podcasting, and introduce a case they've covered. You can listen to us on my episode, episode 105, talk not only about all of the above, but also about the shenanigans we podcasters all got up to in Kansas City recently. Bob and I, as well as the podcast True Crime Garage, Crime Lines, and True Crime BS were all invited to take part in the Generation Y 10th anniversary show in Kansas City. On episode 105 of True Crime Binge, you can hear all about our backstage antics and who drank what and how much. It was a really fun conversation, so I hope you'll check it out and subscribe to True Crime Binge and learn all about your favorite podcasters. It's such a blast, you guys. And I want to thank Bob and Erica for having me on. It was way too much fun. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>